Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Everything was with a lot of secrecy, I had to sign so many uh, papers and NDAs and leave my phone outside. They put a sticker over uh, my camera. And after I produced it, it was six months until it came out. So, and I could not tell anybody and my head was exploding. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. And today I am with Pale Bo. He is the owner and CEO of Radio Guru, an award winning production company that develops radio commercials, runs radio training programs, and produces podcasts for companies around the world, including major brands like Lego. He runs Radio Guru completely remotely. And it has been winning annual awards since 2010, including the prestigious National Creative Circle Award in 2012. Polly is also the co-founder and co-owner of 17 radio stations across his home country of Denmark. And he's the author of the book, Guide to Better Radio Advertising. He is an internationally sought-after public speaker and has given talks on creative radio advertising and podcasting in countries ranging from Iran to Greenland to South Africa to the Bahamas. In 2016, at age 50, Pale decided to become a full-time digital nomad. He sold his house, his car, his furniture, all to begin slow traveling the world with the goal of traveling to every single country and documenting all of his adventures on his podcast, The Radio Vagabond. Pale, welcome to the show. Oh my God, that sounds so impressive when you say it like that. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Now you, sir, are no stranger <laughs> to a recording studio. No, I'm, and I'm totally impressed by the whole setup here on, the, on this cruise ship where we are now. And you even have one of these, what, what are they called? Uh, things with like mic, flag. mic flags. Oh my God, I got to get me one of those. You don't have a mic flag. Well, I'm impressed with your setup as well. And sort of just to set the context for people, as you mentioned, we are on a boat crossing the Atlantic Ocean en route to Brazil. 
We are recording this with my mobile podcast studio that I have set up in my cabin here. And we just opened a bottle of Chilean Carmenere wine, which we will be drinking through while having this discussion, which I was excited to learn is also one of your favorite wines. It is. Yeah. This is my go-to Chilean wine. I love that. I learned about this wine when I was down in Santiago living there for about a month and I absolutely got hooked on it. It's in my local supermarket back in Denmark. So yeah. Amazing. So let's give a little more context here too. You and I basically ran into each other, met on the Nomad Cruise, which is where we are right now. And I started to understand who you were. And I was like, wait a minute, you're doing what? And you did this. And and, and I was just totally impressed. But in fact, Matt, we, we met on Nomad Cruise 6. Uh, we're on 7 now. And, and we didn't re- we just said hi to each other when we met each other. We didn't really get to chat as much as we did on this one. Well, that's the thing with these Nomad circles, right? We have 500 digital nomads yeah, on this boat and so you can only get to know each other so well and so then you see people that you know you talk more to them and you're like i didn't even know that you did that or you had these incredible you know stories and life adventures and everything and so when we talked more on this cruise you just interviewed me for your podcast two days ago and then i'm interviewing you for my podcast now and one of the things that i love about what you do is that you have a completely portable recorder that you just carry around with you and you can literally pull that thing out as you're in any context having a conversation with someone and just record you know somewhere from a 10 to 30 minute conversation with an individual that might be a pretty difficult individual perhaps to schedule you know a whole long thing with or get to come into a studio or even set up a call with but you're out there interacting with somebody you just pull that thing out and you've got incredible conversations recorded with really amazing people that you run into. That's the way I like it. Instead of trying to create a studio environment, I just take pride in that I can hear all the sounds around. In the interview with you, I'm sure we can hear people in the bar and the boat rocking and stuff like that. But hey, we're on a boat. I love that. Yeah, exactly. And I've been listening through some of your podcast episodes and it's amazing because they're basically all on-site interviews somewhere, You wherever you are. You're in the street somewhere in a market or in a place or you know wherever it is and you're just interviewing people live and really authentically documenting literally your travel adventures as you go through the world, which I think is an incredible way to do it. And in fact, sometimes when I need to do a voiceover to connect the clips I recorded, I have great microphone as well, and I can build a studio facility in wherever I am. But instead, I just take this small stereo recorder and go outside and speak into that. So still, you get the feeling of something going on. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about just your decision to sell everything and begin slow traveling the world long term at age 50. I would love to just start off if you can sort of share the lead up to that decision and you know what types of factors contributed to your decision to do that and how that transition was for you. Let me go a little bit back first, because right out of school, I worked at an agency. I was a graphic designer, and then I co-founded this radio station and got into the whole radio career, and I got a family and got two kids. And at some point, I think it was in Cannes, at the Cannes Lions, I was standing on the beach with sand between my toes, speaking to this Danish guy who just wrote an amazing book about advertising, and he wrote it in Cape Town. And then I just randomly said, at some point when my kids move out of the house, I want to move somewhere in the world and live somewhere for a couple of years. 
And then he just said, oh, you got to go to Cape Town uh, because South Africans, they do great radio. They typically become very, very good in the Can Lion award show. When it comes to radio, they do great radio. And it, it's in English, so I could dabble with working with radio in English. So I thought, eh, maybe I should go to Cape Town. And then somebody told me, oh, you should go and test it out what it's like and go for a few months, not just a week vacation. Go for a few months, see if you can actually live there. So in, um, in, in 2013, I went there uh, for two months and just took my job with me. And that's where it dawned on me. First of all, Cape Town is so wonderful and I love it. But I discovered that my clients, they didn't even realize that I was away. The way I run my company is typically on the phone or uh, on email. And they're spread all over Denmark and typically in Copenhagen, which is not uh, where I used to live. It didn't make any difference if I was in my hometown of Randers, Denmark, or I would be anywhere else in the world. So when I got back, I thought, I love Cape Town and I could easily see myself living there for a couple of years, but there's so many places around the world where I could see myself visiting. So I put a world map on my wall and uh, every time I poured myself a cup of coffee, I was working out of my house at the time, I took a pen and put a dot on the map. And uh, after a while, I started connecting these dots and started planning it. And that was three years leading up to when my youngest daughter would graduate. Uh, so I had two and a half to three years of planning this and I planned the crap out of it. It was really, it was so detailed, Matt. It was insane. It was like, where am I going to be in, in which country, in which week, in which year? So it was so detailed planned. And I knew that I would probably deviate from the plan, but... After a week into my travel, it was out the window. I never came back to it. But uh, that's the way it happened. So in July 16, I, I took off. That is amazing. I think it's really interesting in terms of the planning and the way different people approach travel. Because as I speak with different nomads and different people that are slow traveling the world full time, as I am doing as well, you know, I think people have different approaches to travel planning. And some people like to have it really planned out very meticulously, very far in advance. And other people are so spontaneous. There's literally people we're traveling with on this boat that don't know where they're going to be two weeks from now. Right? We're, I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea. I'm, I'm that guy now. Oh, that's how you're doing it oh, now. Oh, yeah, that's how I'm doing it now. No, I don't have any plans now. I, well, I, I booked a place four days when we get to Brazil. But what's going to happen after, I have no idea. So how long did your meticulous advanced travel planning go for until you became more spontaneous like you are now? A week. Really? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe two weeks. It, it was actually when I was, <laughs> I was in uh, uh, Vilnius, uh, Lithuania, and it was my plan to go to Poland from there. No, no, that's not true. I was in Ukraine. Uh, so maybe it was two weeks in, and it was my plan to go to Poland. And then a friend of mine said, no. No, you're going to Moldova. And I said, come on, come on, Henrik. It's not even on my list. And he said, it is now. Uh, so I said, oh, okay, okay. Then I'm going to Moldova. And I went to Moldova and I loved it. Uh, so, and, and from there, I just took it day by day and I never really planned much. It really depends for me too. Like sometimes I'll plan things far in advance. If there's like a big like pillar event that I know I need to, you know, book 
And then sometimes I'll plan around those or leave it, you know, very vague what's going to happen up until there, how I'm actually going to get to this place, what my travel path is going to be there or after. But I think leaving a level of flexibility, because as you said, you meet people that will inspire you to go to places that are absolutely not on your list, right? I mean, and I always ask people, right, when we're interacting with other nomads and travelers, what are your favorite places you've ever been to? And sometimes people will tell me a place that is not even on my list. So I lived in Rio in Brazil in 2015, and I loved it. And I loved it so much that I literally was there for two months, and I didn't leave Rio to see any other part of Brazil because I was like, who would leave Rio? Like, I don't want to miss a day of this. I was there for Carnival, and then I was there for, you know, the month and a half after Carnival, and it was so epic. I literally didn't see any other place. And then as I was traveling around the world the following year, you know, I was speaking to a woman that I had managed and I, you know, super well traveled. And I said, what's your favorite city in the world? And she said, Sao Paulo, Brazil is my favorite city in the world. And I said, really? I said, you've been to Rio. She goes, yeah. And I said, and you've been to Tokyo and Istanbul and, you know, all of these, you know, Iceland, you've been to all these places. She goes, yeah. And I said, that's your favorite place in the world. She goes, absolutely hands down. And I was like, tell me more. And then she's telling me, I said, what did you like about it? And, you know, she's telling me more about, well, it's one of the top street art cities in South America. The graffiti scene is amazing. It's one of the top culinary cities and the food scene. And she's describing it to me in a way. And I'm like, those are all things that I love and cherish about cities. I said, I'm going. And I just, you know, made a plan to go there, you know, quite quickly and check all that stuff out. And indeed, it was epic. And I now speak about Sao Paulo in addition to Rio and other places, you know, to people as I'm talking. But, you know, those kind of conversations when you're having with people just put all kind of stuff on your radar that you might not have read about, you know, when you're doing your travel research or, or whatever, and you continue to hear about more amazing places and go to really have epic experiences, I think. Now I need to go to Sao Paulo yeah. as well. <laughs> exactly. While we're there. Obviously, I'm going to Rio, but I need to get to Sao Paulo as well. It's a special place. I was really, really impressed. So let's talk a little bit about your travel trajectory since you began your travels years ago now at age 50 and you embarked on this epic adventure. You have chosen a number of really unique places, many of which are probably not particularly prominent on travel vacationers lists. And you've had some incredibly interesting adventures along your way. So maybe, I mean, just start up. For example, I was listening to a bit of your podcast episode when you actually went to North Korea. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? For me, that's still one of the countries that, in my opinion, was very, very, very interesting to go to. It's it's not a place I'd love to live in, uh, obviously, but it was super interesting to go there and see that something that I knew already, but but then just look into the people's eyes and uh, see the people's when we were walking the street or driving the subway, uh, that you get to put a face on, on people. That's what made the biggest impression on me because they're the quote-unquote enemy of the Western world. And especially when I was uh, editing the whole thing was uh, when they did all the nuclear tests uh, and Trump was going out with fire and fury and all that. Uh, and then I was there and, and realized that, oh my God, these are... Uh, real people that love their children too. And that's what made a big impression on me, meeting the locals. But of course, when you go on the, one of those uh, organized trips, that's the way you can do it. You only get to see what they want you to see. They didn't 
take us to any of their camps or we didn't get to see all that but we knew about that and when visiting a country you just have to take that into perspective that they only want to show what they want us to see and we can't leave the hotel without a guide and there was always the north korean guide with us uh, so they only show you what they want you to see but um, still interesting Yeah, I was actually in Seoul in South Korea a few months back. I was based there this year in August for about about five weeks. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. The food in Seoul, yes, I still dream about that. And what an underrated city. I mean, Seoul, Korea was just truly spectacular because I don't think it gets the international billing of major epic cities. Where you expect it to be epic, and of course Tokyo is epic, but when you go to Seoul, I was just so impressed with the city. I, th- I think it's just so underrated, and it's so, for me, just so overperformed in terms of how incredible it was. But while I was there, I went up to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. You know, you can go up to the border with North Korea and you can see that whole situation, which is really a fascinating experience. But of course, just as you're saying, you get one very particular narrative right about the situation right and then if you were to see the the dmz from the other side it was interesting i was talking to a uh, actually a brazilian friend of mine earlier this year and he too had been through north korea and went down to the dmz from the north korean side and he was telling me about the you know the narrative that you get and explaining the whole political situation from the northern side as you're going to the border and i was telling him about the narrative that you get when you're coming from the southern side about the border about the whole history of the border and all the things that have gone on and stuff like that so very, very important to understand the perspective that you're getting. But one thing that really surprised me was both the North Koreans and the South Koreans, they don't say if we get reunited. They say when we get reunited. They still feel like one people. And I don't see how that can happen. Not anytime soon. That It's so difficult to see because they're so different. But they really feel like they're still one blood. It's really interesting. I've never been to the North, so that definitely would be, I think, a very, very interesting... You're from the U.S., so you have to wait a while. It's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. It's a little bit more difficult. Now it is. Certain, yeah. people, certain people have been able to do it, but it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty tricky at the moment, for sure. Yeah. In fact, I, I traveled with the same company, uh, Young Pioneers Tours, that had Ottawa on their tour, uh, the young Americans that was imprisoned and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor and later came back in a coma and then died. Uh, and I was traveling with the same company and one of the Australian guys was, was with him on the trip. At the time we were there, Ottawa was still there. And this Australian guy, he said, well, he's coming home soon. They typically don't keep them very long. And he's a young, energetic, good looking guy and he's going to be okay. But then what happened, When, in fact, when I was editing the episode, I had CNN in the background, and all of a sudden, I saw Ottawa comes home, and I said, oh, my God, what's what's going on? And then he came back in a coma and then, then died. It was so tragic, and I still don't know exactly what happened. It's interesting, you know, when you're traveling around to a lot of these places, there are, you know, there's this interesting mix, I think, between the fun and exciting and you know, stimulating and inspiring sort of, you know, adventures. And then there's these, all these political realities that you're also exposed to in terms of, you know, injustices and abuse and power inequality and things that, that people really, you know, experience. And it's this incredibly important, I think, and rich mix of reality that as you go to these places, you're able to see both 
you know, oppression and inequality and injustice and struggle. And then you're also able to see this extraordinary, you know, humanity, you know, and, and fun and, you know, incredibly enjoyable and delightful things and, and be touched in really positive ways by those experiences as well. And that's one of the things that I take away from a lot of my travel. And I try to, you know, when I go to places, I try to really make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm connecting and learning about and immersed in sort of the full range of that thing. So it's not just like, you know, you're not just doing one or overlooking the other. Even though I'm so old, <laughs> I, I still have a lot to learn. And I'm sure that a lot of the stuff that's in my podcast about my views on things, people listening to it would say, no, you're wrong about that. And this is not right. But I still have a lot to learn. But that's one of the reasons I'm traveling. Like when I was in the Bahamas, I went to this uh, dolphin show and went swimming with the dolphins. It was so great. And the dolphins were, they were smiling and they were <laughs> jumping up and down and having fun. And then later I found out that you should never go see dolphins in captivity because of the way they're captured, the way they're trained. And, the, and it just dawned on me. And I, that was a big lesson for me. But when I was there, um, I didn't know. But now I know, and um, so I try to get both sides into what I do when I tell my stories about it. Well, and I appreciate the way that you tell stories, too, because I was listening to some of your episodes when you were going through the American South, for example, and you went, th my parents are now retired and living in Asheville, North Carolina, and you did an amazing episode on Asheville, which I checked out, which is a totally epic city. I mean, it's totally fantastic. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it was just that one day I want to go back. Yeah, and I, you know, I go for the holidays every year there and stuff, and it's a great city. But one of the things that I appreciated as you were traveling through the American South is that you were highlighting both really cool, fun, interesting stuff, but then also looking at the history of the sit-ins and the civil rights movement and where Martin Luther King was assassinated and, you know, all of these different things. And so you bring, you know, you, I think, really embody exactly what I'm describing, which is that you want to connect with the residents and really, you know, find the cool, fun, interesting stuff, but then also have that ever-present history and ongoing daily struggles today with the groups that are there and that are experiencing injustice and things like that. So I really like the whole perspective that you bring to that, which was for me being from the US in an American context, but you know, the same is true in your international travels when you go to places like Cambodia, for example, right? Which I lived in Phnom Penh for a month and I found that to be I mean, there was just a whole bunch of just mixed emotions I had living in Phnom Penh because you have the whole haunting legacy of the Khmer Rouge genocide there. Which, you know, I mean, prosecutions for that have been, you know, going on right up until, you know, just like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? I mean, that's very recent stuff. And yet there's just also so much just delightful and warm and charming and amazing stuff. What was your experience like in Cambodia when you went? I spent a very short time in Phnom Penh and then I, I spent a longer time in, in Siem Reap, which is lovely with the whole Angkor Wat and all that. And when I took a tour of Angkor Wat, the guide was this older guy that we sat down at some point on the tour and, and he told me about how he and his parents were captured by the Cameroos at the time and he was he was beaten with a stick and, uh, and, and the whole thing. And I could tell even so much, so many years have gone by and it was still painful for him to talk about. Even though his English wasn't that good, I, I really could feel that this was very, very hard. And then the hotel I stayed at, um, 
had a very, very young manager, a 24-year-old that told a story about how he grew up and had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and climb up the palm trees uh, and uh, before he went to school and then come back and work hard all, all day. And then again at nighttime, it was very, very tough life for him. And then he was working as a, as a young guy at this, uh, at a hotel. And, uh, there was, and his English was pretty good. And, and there was this American couple that came up to him and, and said that they wanted to support him and, and help him get through school. So now he's been to university and now he managed to, uh, to become the manager of this hotel because somebody wanted to sponsor him. And that whole story was just very touching to my heart. And uh, now he, even though he doesn't make that much money from managing the hotel, he is uh, he's supporting a young girl himself to go to school. And he told me the story that he m might not have enough money for it. And he's a skinny guy. And he told me that he would take up boxing because if he could just get in the ring once and win he would make enough money to support her for for six months. Uh, and and I just looked at this skinny guy and said, you, you really want to do that? He told me that his mother wasn't happy about it, uh, but um, he wanted to do it. And if he if he didn't succeed, he would get nothing. But he said the, the opportunity of uh, winning the game and making money to give to her, it was just wow, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, Siem Reap is really a incredibly remarkable place. I found it's actually in all of Southeast Asia, I would say probably I mean the overall country that I, I probably recommend the most is Thailand, but the one specific city or place that I recommend in the region is Siem Reap. Absolutely For agree. For me, absolutely. That I was so floored by the temple complexes in Siem Reap, so Angkor Wat obviously being the largest temple complex, but all of the other ones, when you take that like three-day temple tour, when you're going through these temples, this is where they filmed Tomb Raider for people that have seen that movie. Especially the one um, Angkor Tom uh, with the, 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 the trees going down. and uh, oh, man. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it, it was like a sensory experience that, it, and I've seen a lot of temples. I'm sure, I know you have as well and, and, you know, all over the world. And this was just, aesthetically, it was just unlike anything I have ever seen. I mean, truly breathtaking. And each of them was just so different, right? So there is that one you mentioned with the trees growing out of the rocks in these amazing ways. And then the one with the faces in the rocks and this, I mean, like each one you go to, you're just, it's jaw dropping how extraordinary those temple complexes are. And I had the pleasure of seeing it from above as, as the sun was going down when I went hot air balloon flying. Uh, it was unbelievable. You yeah. did the hot air balloon. Oh, yeah. I did not do that, but that uh, that sounds... Go back and do that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I would love to. I've been in one hot air balloon my entire life, but, you know, I keep seeing these, you know, epic global locations, you know, like my friends just went on the hot air balloon in Cappadocia in Turkey, you know, or they go in these like really like insane places, right? So I'm like, man, I need, I need to do more hot air ballooning. Now, you also did the world's highest bungee jump in Macau, which I've been to Macau. I went to Hong Kong, and then I took the ferry over to Macau, but I certainly did not do that. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? 
Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what happened. All of a sudden, I was standing on the platform, leaning forward, and it's insane. It's 233 meters. How much is that in feet? Uh, a lot. 800 feet, 900 feet, something like that. It's higher than the the one in, uh, in, in, in Las Vegas. And, and Macau is... Las Vegas on steroids. It's 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 even bigger than than Vegas Vegas when it comes to gambling. Yeah, and then I I I, I went up there and um, and I said, let me do this. And as I was about to jump, I just I was just hoping for somebody to tell me, no, this is just a joke. You don't have to do this. But then I I thought I'd better I'd better lean forward. I, I I've seen videos of people doing it, and they. Just before they jump, they sort of bend their knees so it's not so far down, <laughs> which to me makes no sense. So I decided I'm not going to do that. In fact, I also I, I thought I might do a little jump as well, like jumping. But no, it was just lean forward. And then I did not anticipate what happened, but I screamed. I I didn't know I didn't think I was going to scream it was just nah but I screamed like you wouldn't believe until I had no more air in my lungs and then I took a deep breath and screamed some more because I was still falling it's just so far down it was insane but I felt secure I my brain knew that I was not going to die from this I I knew I was not going to die from it, but but my body did not know that. So I was pumped up with adrenaline the rest of the week. So felt good, felt good, but I would never do it again. Well, you don't need to. You've already done it, and you've documented it on your podcast. You got the T-shirt, and uh, you can tell stories about it. So they they put a GoPro camera on my arm, so I have the most amazing uh, picture of me uh, falling down and and looking the most terrified I've been in my entire life. It's all on <laughs> on my blog. All right, so I want to go back a little bit now and talk a bit about your professional trajectory and your career coming up through radio. Can you talk a little bit about, because you were quite innovative in terms of, uh, you know, founding radio stations that were producing the type of content that you wanted to see that you didn't think other radio stations were doing. You really trailblazed a trajectory there, and that led to you being one of the earliest podcasters in 2006 and really being on the forefront of you know, some of the audio content movement there. So can you talk a little bit about that and just kind of tell us what that was like coming up through radio and, and what you did and how you built some of that? You have to take into consideration that the whole radio scene in Denmark was very, very different back in, up until early 80s, it was only the national broadcaster. They had three programs and that was all we could hear. Obviously, no internet radio. If you lived close to Sweden, you might be able to pick some, pick up some Swedish radio. If you lived close to Germany, some German radio. But other than that, where I lived, we had three channels. Uh, and that was all from our BBC, Denmark's radio. And uh, in fact, through my childhood, every day from 9 a.m. To, to noon, the same program was on all three channels. And it was classical music. It was like... Now we want to educate the Danish people of what is good taste. So when they said, okay, now let's try with some local radios, uh, just as a trial to see what that's what's going to happen, to let the local, you know, the kind of community radios, uh, 
Obviously, they're not going to be as professional as we are in Denmark's radio, uh, but um, yeah, let, let's let's do that. And uh, we were a bunch of guys. They started a community radio in in uh, in, in my hometown, and it was it was like everybody came in. There was the, the housewives doing morning uh, midday radio, and the very political on le- the very far right, on the very far left, and there was a a fiddler doing a fiddler's program. <laughs> there was all kinds of programs on the same radio station, and then there were me. And a group of like-minded young 20-year-olds, we just wanted to do pop radio. We just wanted to play pop music and um, all the Rick Ashley, Kylie Minogue and all that back in the the mid-80s. We couldn't really make the kind of radio that we wanted to listen to. So at some point, my friend who was there, uh, he looked at me and said, can you raise a little bit of cash? without saying what for. And instantly I said, you mean to start our own radio station? And he was stunned. He said, how, how the hell do you read my mind? So we had the same thought at the same time uh, that we wanted to see if we could get our own license. And we got two more guys on board and then we, uh, we, we got the license and we started this small radio station where we didn't have a 24-hour license. Uh, it was just a few hours in the morning and a few hours at night and uh, but we started it not because we wanted to build a company but because we wanted to be able to make the kind of radio that we wanted to listen to and maybe our friends wanted to listen to so that was the reason we started it it was it was not to build a company and now 27 years later we have a bunch of stations and a couple of other stuff as well so now it is a company but it it, it was all started with the passion of making great radio I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. That's amazing. And you're now an owner of 17 radio stations, co-owner, but you're not actively managing them. It's mostly just a passive income now for you. You founded it and you set it up and now it's running by itself. Yeah. In fact, the guy who I got the idea with, uh, he's now the manager and, and he's got 51% of the company now. But so, but he's doing a very good job. And uh, so uh, we like him to stay. So that's why we, we let him get a bit more. <laughs> awesome. And you can travel the world and collect passive income. So it's a, it's a win-win. So tell me a little bit about Radio Guru, the company that you now own, you're the CEO, and you've won a number of awards for the productions, radio commercials, and and things that Radio Guru has produced. And you've landed enormous clients like Lego 
in terms of producing podcasts and that one you even hosted in, in addition to produce. Can you talk a little bit about the trajectory of that company and then how you land started landing companies like Lego and then what that podcast experience was like? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in fact, before I founded my company, and by the way, Calling it Radio Guru just indicates that I'm so full of myself, doesn't it? <laughs> I thought, can I really do that? Yeah, I can. I can do it. You've earned no, it. You've earned it. <laughs> no, before that, I was the radio manager at a big media company in in a part of Denmark, and I was buried in business cases and budgeting and managing staff, and got so far away from where my passion was producing radio i had to i had to leave and, and 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 do something else because i i didn't enjoy being the manager i didn't enjoy being behind a computer screen with spreadsheets and 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 all that i enjoyed more the hands-on stuff with the radio so i i quit that job and i started by cutting my own salary in half and when i started my own company but soon it grew and uh and into what it is now where I can I can still have my hands on what I do and uh, I really enjoy being editing and uh, coming up with ideas and writing scripts and directing the actors and and all that when it comes to radio commercials and now I've gotten more and more into into podcasting and I truly enjoy that and I see that as a great medium for the for the future uh, and uh, and and something that more and more companies will do like lego did do their own branded podcast so that's something that i i I still hope to do more radio commercials i still enjoy doing that especially when i have clients that can see the benefit of doing something creative and something interesting but i i really also want to want to do more podcasting i think that's super super exciting and talk about maybe a little bit about how the Lego thing came about. How, you know, how did you land a client of that caliber? And then maybe talk a little bit about what that experience was like. You were mentioning to me that you got to go to the Bugatti factory. What was that? How did that all come about? Well, I was so lucky that a guy who used to be the creative director of uh, one of the biggest agencies in Denmark, and in fact, he wrote one of the commercials that I produced, that one best commercial of the year. He was now one of the creative directors of Lego uh, at the time. And he said that we're planning to do a podcast when we're doing the Lego Technique version of the Bugatti. It's sort of an ultimate project for us. and It's something special. And we want to give the uh, the people who buy this and spent more than a week assembling this massive uh, thing an extra thing when they're they're assembling it and uh, a podcast would be a cool thing and we've we've spoken to a lot of uh, different production houses uh, and um, and we'd like to hear your take on how to do it and they said we need a, we need a host that can host it and somebody who really can 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 do that and i i was starting to think oh maybe this guy would be good oh this guy would be and then after a few days i said hey why not my why not me why well, i can do it i can do it yeah and that's one of the times when my own uh, radio vagabond podcast uh, became useful for me and i said listen to my style how i edit and how i how i interview people and um 
see if you think that my my English is good enough uh, because I'm not a native English speaker. But them being from Denmark, especially, no, it's fine, it's fine, and they they chose me over these uh, these companies, and uh, we had a, a great time. I spent um, a couple of weeks in Denmark interviewing the uh, the Lego people where, that that built the model, and then I went to uh, Molsheim in France, where they have the Bugatti factory, and also to Wolfsburg in in Germany, where they do parts of the car like the engine, and and interviewed the people that did the real car. Can you talk a little bit about just for people that aren't familiar with Bugatti, the brand, and they're not familiar with that car? I mean, that because that is that is such a high echelon. Like a lot of people, you know, they've heard of brands like Ferrari and they've heard of brands like Lamborghini. But can you explain exactly what Bugatti is and what you saw there? Take, take yeah, take the most expensive Ferrari and the most expensive Lamborghini, and then just add a little bit. Take the the speed that they do. And then just add a little bit. It's it's the most insane thing. First of all, I think it's the most beautiful creation. Uh, it's it's so beautiful, but it's super super fast. It goes from zero to four hundred k and back to zero in forty two seconds. So not only is it the acceleration is insane uh, with one thousand five hundred horsepowers, but the, the the way it can break as well, it's it's phenomenal. And then it's just stunning. It's just so beautiful. And it looks very different from any other car you've ever seen. I have, you know, I lived in LA for a number of years and there is a store on Rodeo Drive in LA, if you've ever been there. If I, I believe that it's called Bijon, uh, which is one of these stores where you need to have an appointment to get in the door. It's not a walk-in store. You have to you have to have an appointment to get in the door, and I think they financially qualify you before you go in. And it's this custom, you know, it's a custom clothing store which sells, I assume, outrageously expensive customized clothing, and. The I, what I assume is the owner of the store he owns a Bugatti. Yeah, I assume he owns it and parks it in front of the store each day with a hat this with the name of the company Bijon in the dashboard. And so it's like when you're going down Rodeo Drive in L.A., which is of course this huge you know tourist thing. Everybody wants to go and see the the legendary Rodeo Drive. The number one thing that I see people taking pictures of is they're in front of the store. They're taking pictures in front of this Bugatti because in L.A., if you go to those types of areas, you might see, you know, you'll see plenty of Lamborghinis. You'll see plenty of Rolls Royces. You'll see plenty of Ferraris. You know, that's not unusual to see in L.A. A Bugatti, which is probably and I, I'm guessing I mean, I'm not a supercar aficionado, but if if these Ferraris or Lamborghinis, you know, the really top notch ones cost maybe a quarter million U.S. dollars, you know, $250,000 or something for some of these cars. A Bugatti, I assume, starts at at least a million dollars, you know, in terms of the type of price point. So you're talking about, you know, buying, being able to buy four or five Lamborghinis for the price of one Bugatti. I mean, this is an extraordinarily rare echelon of a, of an, uh, a car. Yeah, and the, one of the episodes, I, I speak to uh, the, the head of sales at Bugatti and the whole selling process of a thing like that it's so much different i don't get the same treatment when i go in to buy a car i can tell you that the people who buy them are they custom make no two are alike and they only make 500 and no more they only make 500 of it so 
it's a very very special uh, thing and i i feel privileged to be, have, have have been a part of that project can you share any sort of takeaways or behind the scenes experiences what was that like to be in that environment and to interview those types of people and to experience as you said something that's very different level of customer experience than anything that anyone else would spend when you're buying a million dollar product right so what what was that like or what takeaways did you have from that experience everything was with a lot of secrecy i had to sign so many uh, uh, papers and NDAs and uh, and leave my phone outside. They put a sticker over uh, my camera. And uh, after I produced it, it was six months until it came out. So And I could not tell anybody. And my head was exploding. I couldn't. I, I'm doing some work for Lego. I think that's okay to say, but I couldn't tell what it was. So it was driving me nuts. But also both the Bugatti, but also going inside the places at Lego in Billund, Denmark, where the people are creating these things that will come out in a couple of years. And uh, it, they do so much that so many companies around the world, uh, especially in in Asia, are trying to copy and often succeed. So so it's it's really, even, even when the guy who is the head designer of uh, the Bugatti model, when he was carrying the thing around in the building... Inside Lego, he had it in a plastic bag so uh, nobody could see it, uh, just in case somebody would snap a photo uh, so they could maybe do something and recreate it so it could be ready. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Wow. But now all of this is released. It's all come out as a podcast and people can go and listen to it. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, and in fact, they brought me back to do a second season because they made something that was even more crazy. They decided to do a one-to-one scale model of the Bugatti Chiron, all made out of Lego technique, the, the tiny elements, and without using glue. And then they wanted it to drive as well, using only the small, tiny Lego motors. So they built that, they gave that task to a group of uh, hardcore Czech people. They have a place in uh, outside of Prague in Klatno in, in the Czech Republic and they said, can you do that? They called them from Denmark and said, can you do that and actually making it drive? And that's when the, when the line got kind of quiet because <laughs> okay, yeah, we can do that, we can do that. And they spent so many hours and more than a million Lego elements on, on doing it. And uh, so they brought me to the Czech Republic to speak to the guys. And again, I was brought into this place where they do all the big scale models for the Legoland parks and uh, the big flagship stores around the world. At the time, they were doing some stuff for a shop in Shanghai. And I'm not sure it's open yet, so I'm not allowed to say what it was, but it was insane. And then they they made this uh, Lego Technique version of the real-size Bugatti Chiron that was stunning. And later they brought it to Wolfsburg in Germany where the Volkswagen group that owns Bugatti, they have the test track. So where they did the real speed test of the real Bugatti, they also wanted to do the driving test of this model. And so that's what the second season is about, that whole project. 
Wow. So I definitely need to listen to all of that. We're going to link in the show notes to those podcasts where people can listen to them because they both seasons have now been published and they're yeah, available, yeah, right? Yeah. And and it's in fact, if, if people have an, an app, it's just searching for the Lego Technique podcast. Okay, fantastic. So we'll link that up in the show notes and you hosted and produced both seasons. Yeah. Amazing. So, all right. Are you ready for some lightning round questions. Do you have a jingle for that? <laughs> we do, actually. We're going to drop it in <laughs> right about now. The lightning round. Pale, what is one book that you would recommend to folks that has really been influential to you over the years? Oh, there's so many. But the one book I would have to say when it comes to the whole traveling lifestyle that I'm living now, it would absolutely have to be Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. That book not only made me call myself the radio vagabond, but I'm actually more of an audiobook kind of guy. So I have had it on audiobook first, and then I liked it so much that I ordered the, the paper version as well so I could put in notes and scribble and put in post-it and here and there. And uh, so I have both the audio version and the paper version. Uh, so for me, that was the most useful book. And uh, and that was just in my planning phase. And actually, a, a few months ago, I was lucky enough to meet Rolf Potts uh, when I was in, in Austin and get to tell him that story and uh, and interview him for, for the podcast. I listened to that episode as I was screening through your episode titles on your podcast, saw that you had interviewed him, and I immediately listened to that episode. He is truly extraordinary. For anybody that has read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, you'll know that Tim Ferriss cites Rolf Potts really extensively as one of his primary inspirations for writing The 4-Hour Workweek, that he had that book with him as he traveled the world and as he prepared the four hour work week. And actually Tim Ferriss produced the audio book for it. And um, so, yeah, they became good friends. Yeah. So that's amazing. I have not personally met Rolf Potts yet, but that's definitely somebody that I, I would really, and such a nice guy. I would really like to be able to speak with at, at some point, but I totally agreed on that book. That's one that really influenced me as well. What would be one app or productivity tool or gadget that you're currently using that you would recommend? I'm using Evernote a lot. I think it's just so handy because it synchronizes with both my computer and my, my iPad and my phone. So, But that's kind of an obvious thing. If I should pick something that's a little bit different, it would be a, an, an app that I have on my iPhone called Track My Tour. It's a cute little app, and every time I'm in a new place, I can just say at Waypoint, and it knows where I am, it knows the date, so it puts in a pin and then connects uh, the, the, the pin, so I, I can see my route of where I've been since I started traveling uh, two years and five months ago, so that's kind of funny. It's called Track My Tour. Knowing what you know now, and all of your experiences in life up to this point, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self? Do that haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and those glasses, they are, they're, not, they're not doing you any favors. <laughs> That's amazing. That might be the best answer I have received to that question so far. <laughs> no. 
I actually, actually, I would, I would tell myself to 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 follow my passion. It's something I try to to tell my daughters as well, uh, because. But that's kind of what I did. I, I I did what I enjoyed doing, and that's probably why I became fairly qualified at what I do is because I I really really enjoy doing it, and and now that I'm doing my my my. Vagabond podcast. It's not because it might be able to make me some money at some point. It's barely, barely covering the expenses by now. But it's something because I enjoy doing it. Doing radio and producing. It's still my hobby. It's it's not work. I agree. You know, I love doing this podcast, and it's amazing the types of people that I get to speak with and have conversations with. And I'm just simply, you know, it's exactly the way I would be spending my free time over a bottle of wine as we are here talking with interesting people, except that I get to just press the record button and allow other people to hear it as well. So, you know, my background also, I became a DJ back in the very beginning of high school. And that was for me out of love, initially out of my love for hip hop music in the US coming up and became a hip hop DJ, but then parlayed that into a mobile DJ business where I was DJing weddings and school dances and all that kind of stuff. And then I got a, did a show on the college radio station and I got a little studio radio experience and all that kind of stuff. And then I went, you know, totally out of that for years. You know, I was away from the microphone for years, and then now coming back and doing the podcast really feels good. It feels amazing. It's in a totally different capacity, but it's really fun and incredible where I just get to simply interview the most interesting people I know. All right. Next question. Who is the celebrity or author or public figure, anyone that's currently living today that you would most like to have dinner with? Matt Bowles. <laughs> that we can arrange, my friend, because you and I are about to go to dinner in uh, five minutes. Uh, so uh, that, that that bucket list item is already going to be granted. So uh, starting tomorrow, uh, who, who else is on your bucket list of somebody you'd love to just meet and have a few hour conversation again, with? Again, it would be a very obvious answer to say uh, Richard Branson or Barack Obama. But that's just so... You're allowed. Yeah. You're allowed, if that's the answer, you can select your person, whoever that is. Or it could be a candlelit dinner with uh, Angelina Jolie. I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> in fact, when we were talking about CM Reap before, uh, when I was in CM Reap, she was there as well. Really? Uh, because she had uh, she had the world premiere of uh, the movie that she directed, and, and I think she wrote it as well and produced. And the world premiere was in CM Reap. And for a few seconds, I thought, okay, if I meet her, do I have a chance? <laughs> I never met her. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't make that happen. Well, <laughs> well, you never know. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity uh, um, left here. So, all right, now, so the last thing that I want to ask you, sort of, as we go out, before I we tell people how to contact you and and listen to your podcast and all of that. The last question is, I want to ask if you can summarize all of your expertise in producing great radio commercials. You have done that over the years. You've been paid to do that by very high profile companies. You've won awards internationally all over the world for your radio commercials, which, you know, audio commercials, podcast commercials, that kind of stuff. If you were to synthesize and condense your biggest advice 
on what makes a great, effective radio commercial that maybe anybody today who's you know, hosting a podcast or trying to produce a great commercial for their business, what are the elements that make a great, effective audio commercial? I think I'll put it this way, and that's actually not only for radio commercials, but a hell of a lot for radio commercials, but in fact, for any kind of medium where you want to uh, people to listen to your message, you have to remember that there's an unwritten contract between you as the advertiser or the person who wants to communicate something and the people who wants to listen to it uh, or you want to listen to it. That there's an unwritten contract that they're giving me something, they're giving me a part of their time so I should honor that by giving them something in return and not just try to sell them a product. I hear so many radio commercials where it's just talking about the product from start to finish as if the listeners, they give a damn. They don't. They are only interested in what you can do for them. So you should hook them in. You should entertain them. Give them something before trying to sell a product. And then there are, of course, there's the, the obvious thing that try to, if it's, if it's a radio commercial, try to make it sound as if it's not. Try to make something that sounds natural and in a conversational tone and uh, creep under the, the radar by, by doing something that doesn't really sound like a commercial. I think that's great advice. I totally agree with that. All right. So, Paula, how can people connect with you if they want to follow you, they want to follow your journey? How do they find your podcast? And also, if you want people to follow you on social media or other places, how do they connect with you? The podcast is called The Radio Vagabond. And you got to remember the the, because otherwise you get the Danish version and you don't want that. So The Radio Vagabond and the website is theradiovagabond.com. I'm also on, on Facebook as Pala Radio Vagabond and on all the different social media as, as Radio Vagabond. But um, The Radio Vagabond, you have all the links to everything and that's what you search for. Awesome. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed the episodes that I've listened to. I'm certainly uh, subscribing and going to be following the rest of your journey. I love your style. I love the way you do it. I love how real it is where you actually bring the listener into your travel adventure to the actual place where you are speaking with the people that you're speaking and you just record it as you go through the world. I think it's an amazing concept, an amazing way to do it. And I certainly encourage everybody to follow your journey with that. So we will link everything in the show notes. So just go to the show notes page. All of the links for every resource that we talked about will be aggregated there in one place. So just go to the show notes page and you'll find it there. And Polly, thank you so much for being here today. This was great. Thank you, Matt. And I just wanted to say I love you too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go have that dinner so we can knock it off our bucket list. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. 
If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.